Marathon was a guy. He was the king of Corinth, who walked away from the city and went to become a sailor in Attica. When his kids were old enough, he went back, set them up, and proceeded to enjoy life as a sailor. Greek history and Greek mythology are incredibly intertwined and build upon each other. If you like this podcast on Greek history, and let's be honest, we were all waiting for one, you might want to give Mythology Translated a try. I focus on variation and sources of the stories as Greek literature starts in 800 BCE and my personal cutoff date tends to be around 134 BCE. Why 134 BCE? Keep listening to the Greek History Podcast. He'll get there. Mythology Translated on iTunes, mythologytranslated.com, and on Twitter at at MythTrans. Until next time. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 36, The Marathonomachoi. In 492 BC, two years after the Ionian Revolt was quelled, Darius decided it was about time that he punished Athens and Eretria for their role in the invasion. While this was his ultimate aim, he also needed to pacify the land approaches to Greece, as many cities on the Thracian coastline had revolted. Furthermore, the young Prince Alexander came to the throne six years earlier in 498 BC with the death of his father, Amyntas. As we have seen, Alexander wasn't a fan of the Persians. It's not stated, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had revolted too. So departing from Cilicia, Mardonius sent the army to march to the Hellespont, while he traveled with the fleet. He sailed around the coast of Asia Minor to Ionia, where he spent a short time making sure that all tyrannies had been abolished and replaced them with democracies. From there, the fleet continued on to the Hellespont and shipped the land forces across to Europe. Apparently, no bridge was made this time. The army then started marching along the northern Aegean coast while the fleet accompanied them. They easily recovered their territories in Thrace and moved towards Macedon, whose king Alexander saw which way the wind was blowing, and once again, he recognized the great king as his overlord. Macedon was now officially turned into a full-pledged province, no longer just being a vassal state. This submission would be avenged in distant days to come by a descendant with the same namesake. But that's a story for an episode way, way down the road. Meanwhile, the Persian fleet had crossed over from the Thracian coastline to the island of Thassos, resulting in the Thasians submitting to the Persians. The fleet then rounded the coastline, around the Halkidiki Peninsula, but as they neared Mount Athos, on the right leg of the peninsula, they were caught up in a violent storm that drove them into the coastline, and thus wrecked the Persian fleet. Others were killed by savage sea creatures, and others from drowning, or hyperthermia from the cold water. According to Herodotus, 300 ships and 20,000 men were lost at sea. Then, to make matters worse, While the army was camped in Macedon, the Brygians, a local Thracian tribe, launched a night raid against the Persian camp, killing many Persians and wounding Mardonius. Despite his injury, though, he was still able to make sure the Brygians were defeated and subjugated, but the army could not press on without their fleet. Its damage was so serious that the Persians were thus forced to abandon the expedition and retreat back to Persia. 
Although this expedition ended ingloriously, it was successful in rescuing the land approaches across the northern Aegean and restoring Persian prestige in northern Greece, as Persian influence now extended to the northern border of Thessaly, the most northerly Greek region. In the next year, in 491 BC, Darius ordered the Thasians, who had been falsely accused of planning a revolt by their neighbors, to tear down their walls and turn over all of their ships to the Persians at Abdera. And so they did, and after this, Darius decided to use diplomatic overtures to test the resolve of the Greeks. While the Persians were marching through northern Greece, the rest of the Greeks were well aware of it too, and they no doubt had been aware of Darius's intentions for them as well. And so, while he sent messengers to his tribute-paying Greek cities along the Thracian coast, with orders to build warships and vessels to transport horses, ambassadors were also sent to all Greek cities on land and on the islands, demanding their submission of earth and water. Many quickly submitted to them, fearing a loss of revenue from trade, including Argos, Thebes, and Agina. Athens and Sparta, though, remained steadfast in their opposition to Persia. Athens not only dismissed Darius's demands, but had his ambassadors tried, convicted, and thrown into a pit, the usual fate for Athenian criminals who were condemned to death. The Spartans did the Athenians one better, though. The ambassadors sent to Sparta were not tried. Instead, they were simply flung down a well and told that if they sought earth and water, they would find both down there. And so, in a sort of twist of irony, a little over a decade after the Spartans had tried to invade Athens, an Athenian-Spartan alliance was beginning to shape up. This whole incident, though, while it may be grimly comedic, it also was a massive breach of diplomatic protocol. Then, as in now, ambassadors traveled under a sort of special protective immunity, because otherwise you couldn't conduct any sort of negotiation. This was a serious religious crime, too, and as we will see, as always in Herodotus, retribution will occur. Although I'm not saying the two events were related, the Spartans soon found themselves thrown into disarray by internal maneuverings. The Athenians were not too pleased that Agina had submitted to Persia, troubled by the possibility of Persia using Agina as a naval base, so they requested Spartan aid in dealing with their old enemy. At this point, Cleomenes changed his mind about their prior alliance with Agina, wanting to arrest those leaders who had given in to the Persians. And so he traveled to Agina to confront the Aginetans personally. But they appealed to his co-king Demaratus and argued that Cleomenes had no authority from the Spartan government to interfere in Aginetan affairs and was only doing it because he was swayed by Athenian money. After hearing this, Demaratus was supportive of their stance. This led to another quarrel between the two kings over Spartan foreign policy. Demaratus responded by trying to undermine Cleomenes' authority back home. This led Cleomenes to return back to Sparta and begin to hatch up a plan to get rid of his rival king. In doing so, he enlisted the aid of Leotachidas, a relative and personal enemy of Demaratus. Leotachidas accused and prosecuted Demaratus in court and tried to demonstrate over and over again that he was not the son of Ariston and therefore was an illegitimate king. He provided as witnesses the ephors who claimed that they overheard Ariston once declare that the baby boy was not his because he was born seven months into his marriage and not nine. 
It is interesting to note that the variations in human gestation terms seems to have been unknown to ancient Spartans, or at least to Herodotus and his contemporary audience, and that no one thought to call the mother of Demaratus to testify at the hearing on his legitimacy. Anyways, the controversy continued without any resolution until Cleomenes convinced the Spartans that they should consult the oracle at Delphi. But unbeknownst to the Spartans, Cleomenes had bribed the Delphic priest named Coban, as well as the Pythia, to announce that Demaratus was not the son of Ariston. And so, the Delphic oracle made the pronouncement, and Demaratus was deposed, as the Eurypontid king in 491 BC, after which he fled to Elis, then the island of Zanchithis, and finally to the Persian court at Susa, where he became an advisor to Darius. Leotachitis became the next Eurypontid king, ruling from 491 to 476 BC. And so, with Demaratus now out of the way, Cleomenes was now free to do as he pleased, because Leotachitis essentially was handpicked to be his puppet. Then, both kings attacked Aegina, defeated the Persian collaborators, seized ten hostages, and delivered them to the Athenians as a token of reconciliation and alliance in 491 BC. However, that's about as good as it got for Cleomenes, because almost immediately, his plot against Demaratus was discovered. Cleomenes was then forced to flee Sparta, and the Delphic priest and the Pythia were both ousted from their positions and exiled from Delphi too. It was too late, though, for Demaratus to return to Sparta, since he had already defected to the Persians, and thus he would not be accepted back. We will see Demaratus appear in a future episode, though. Anyways, Cleomenes chose a different route than Demaratus after he was exiled. Instead, he attempted to organize the Arcadians and Helots against Sparta, possibly seeking to overthrow the Spartan oligarchy. However, fearing what could happen, the Spartans invited him back. According to Herodotus, by this time Cleomenes had become mentally unstable, and it only got worse after his return to Sparta. He had the habit of getting completely drunk and smacking Spartan citizens in the face with his scepter. After many complaints, his half-brothers, Leonidas and Cleombrotus, had him locked up and placed under Helot guard. That same night, Cleomenes terrified his guard into handing him a dagger by saying that when he got out, he would kill his entire Helot family. And so, fearfully, the Helot handed over the dagger, and Cleomenes used it to flay his skin, beginning from his legs up to his thighs before stabbing himself in the gut. A very unspartan way to die. Pausanias alleged his fit of madness was brought on by the gods as a result of his desecration of the Hiera Orgas, which literally means sacred meadow, in Eleusis, decades earlier when invading Attica. The Argives say it was because he had brought the fugitives out of the sanctuary of Argos and executed them, and had no regard for the grove of Argos itself, and had it burnt down an event which we mentioned last episode. The Spartans say that he had become deranged not because of any divine force, but because he had become accustomed to drinking undiluted wine and in large portions. Regardless, nobody is quite sure what brought on this fit of madness. It may have been regicide and not suicide at all. The veracity of accounts of Cleomenes' insanity and suicide have thus been the subject of speculation amongst modern historians. If Cleomenes had not been a Spartan, and thus was not subject to their governmental apparatus, 
He might have become one of the greatest figures in Greek history, but his ambition was shackled and his abilities hampered at every turn. On important occasions during his life, Sparta was called upon to take action in foreign affairs, both in Greece and abroad, and on each occasion, we find that his policy fell short thanks to the opposition of his royal colleague. Despite this, though, he dominated Spartan history for more than 20 years, at a time when we see Sparta firmly establishing themselves as the premier military power in the Hellenic world. He was succeeded by his half-brother Leonidas, who married his niece and Cleomenes' daughter, Gorgo, and ruled as the Agiad king of Sparta from 491 to 480 BC, alongside the Eurypontid king Leotokites. In the summer of 490 BC, with Athens still defiant and Sparta now also effectively at war with the Persians, Darius initiated another campaign into Greece. An army was assembled at Susa and marched to Cilicia, where a fleet of 600 triremes had gathered, in addition to a number of horse transport ships. Either because Mardonius had failed on his expedition two years earlier, or because his injury that he had suffered hadn't healed quite yet. He was relieved of his command, and the fleet was now commanded jointly by Datis and Artaphernes. Their task was clear. They were to burn Athens and Eretria to the ground and bring back all survivors as captives to the great king. Herodotus does not give the size of the Persian army, but the poet Simonides said the force numbered 200,000, Plutarch and Pausanias gave 300,000, and Plato and Lysias asserted 500,000. Clearly, these numbers were exaggerated, too. Modern scholars estimate that these 600 triremes probably had around 20,000 infantrymen, 2,000 archers, and 3,000 cavalry on them. One such person on this expedition was the aging Hippias, the exiled tyrant who Datis and Artaphernes intended to instill as the satrap of a newly conquered Athens. When they sailed north from Cilicia, in southern Asia Minor, this time, though, to avoid the dangers that wrecked Mardonius' expedition two years earlier, they wouldn't continue north to the Hellespont in Thrace, but would sail straight across the Aegean. Along the way, they stopped first at the island of Rhodes. At Lindos, a temple chronicle records that Datis besieged the city, but was unsuccessful. The fleet then moved north along the Ionian coast towards Samos, before abruptly turning west past Icarus and into the Aegean Sea. The fleet then sailed southwest towards the Cyclades. Their first target was the easternmost Cyclotic island, Naxos. They leveled it to the ground for their earlier defeat of Persian forces, burning the city and their temples and deporting many Naxian captives in the process. The ones that managed to get away fled into the mountains. Moving on, the Persian fleet proceeded to Delos, an island sacred to Apollo and Artemis. Before the Persians had arrived, though, the Delians had already fled from their home to the island of Tinos. Having demonstrated Persian power at Naxos and the price for resistance, Datis now intended to show clemency to the other islands, and he sent a herald to the Delians, proclaiming, Holy men, why have you fled away, and so misjudged my intent? It is my own desire, and the king's command to me, to do no harm to the land where the two gods were born, neither to the land itself, nor to its inhabitants. So return now to your homes, and dwell on your island. Afterwards, he piled up three hundred talents of frankincense upon an altar, and burnt it as a sacrifice. 
The Persians treated the Delians and their priests with great respect, which was the typical Persian position against other religions, particularly the cult of Apollo, as we have discussed before. By implication, the Persians were saying that they are not at war with the Greeks or their gods, but they just wanted revenge against Athens and Eretria. This pious announcement must have meant very little to the Greeks, though, because the Persians, after all, had just recently burned all of the sanctuaries of Naxos. Anyways, the fleet then proceeded to island hop across the rest of the Aegean on its way to Eretria, forcing the people to submit to Persian rule and taking hostages and troops from each island. However, soon after the Persians had left Delos, the island was shaken by an earthquake. Herodotus records that this was the first time this had ever happened to that point, and so the unusual event was noted as a sign of coming troubles. Persians finally arrived at Euboea, at Charistos, a town on the southern tip of the island. The people of Charistos refused to submit to the Persians and hand over to them any hostages, so they were besieged, and their land was obliterated until they relented and submitted to Datis. The Persian fleet then sailed north around Euboea to Eretria. Meanwhile, the Eretrians had appealed to the Athenians for military aid. Not wishing to send any of their forces to Eretria, because presumably they needed them for when the Persians came to Attica, but also not wanting to leave their allies high and dry, they offered them the 4,000 Clarukes, who had been settled at Colchis almost three decades earlier. According to Herodotus, the Eretrians were divided amongst themselves as to the best course of action, whether to flee to the highlands, to undergo a siege, or to submit to the Persians. The majority wanted to remain locked up in the city, so that's what they ultimately did. They made no attempt to stop the Persians from landing or advancing, and thus allowed themselves to be besieged. For six days, the Persians attacked the city, with losses on both sides during sharp engagements outside the walls of Eretria. On the seventh day of besiegement, however, the city fell to the Persians, when two aristocratic Eretrians, named Alcamachus and Philagris, opened the city's gates to the Persians, bribed by gold and wanting to benefit over their local rivals. At that point, the 4,000 Athenian clerics fled back to Attica. They either were acting cowardly or had realized that they would contribute more to the fight back in Athens. It is strange to see that Athens and Eretria hadn't made any joint preparations to meet this inevitable Persian invasion. Eretria was severed from Attica only by a narrow strait, and yet there was no joint action. Surely they knew it was coming, and that they had earned the ire of the great king. Regardless, Eretria was razed, and the, and the Persians pillaged and burned their temples as revenge for the temples of Sardis and enslaved the population, deporting them in accordance with Darius's orders. The Persian generals had accomplished only half of their task, and so they then turned their attention to the other city, which had defied their king. From Eretria, the Persian fleet then headed south towards Attica. They were so confident in their success that they had loaded up their ships with marble along the way so they can erect a victory monument once they had burned Athens to the ground. Crossing over the strait, instead of attacking Athens directly from the sea, they chose to land their fleet at the northern end of the plain of Marathon, about 26 miles northeast of Athens, because that region was the stronghold of the Pisistratids, and they had Hippias with them after all. Also, that region was very suitable for their cavalry. 
The Persians probably didn't think that they would have actually had to fight the Athenians. They most likely thought that if they sat in Marathon, their presence would scare the Athenians, causing a pro-Persian revolution, so that they could sweep in and instill Hippias as satrap. It seems that they were fully expecting the locals to join forces with them, just as they did for Hippias' father. In a bit of a poetic twist, the father had come to this location 50 years before, with but only a small mercenary force, and won an overwhelming victory. The son now came with all of the forces of Asia, and his outcome would be very, very different. The Persians also expected the Athenians to turn on each other, like what happened at Eretria. Also of note, in the lead-up to the battle, Hippias received two omens. In the first one, he dreamed that he was having sexual relations with his mother. That disturbing dream was interpreted that he would return to Athens, recover his role, and ultimately die in his motherland. Secondly, as he disembarked off the ship onto the beaches of Marathon, he was seized by an unusually severe fit of sneezing and coughing that with such a great force, it caused one of his teeth to fall out into the sand, and he was not able to find it. This was interpreted by him personally that he would not get any further than that location. Of course, he wouldn't have relayed this to the Persians. The way Herodotus tells the story, it appears that the Persians had already arrived in Attica before the Athenians even concocted a plan on how they were going to defend their city and their land. This lack of preparedness, in addition to a lack of joint action with the Eretrians, shows very little forethought by the Athenians. Anyways, the Athenian assembly immediately voted to send their greatest runner a man named Phidippides, to Sparta to bear the news and ask for their assistance. Running as fast as he could, he arrived in less than two days, covering a span of 140 miles and even traversing Mount Parthenion, or so the story went. However, it was to no avail, as the Spartans had to explain to the no-doubt breathless Phidippides that they were celebrating the festival of Apollo Carnea, a sacrosanct period of peace when no Spartan army was allowed to engage in battle, and said that they could not come until after the next full moon, which was about a week to ten days later. As the Spartans were deeply religious, and weren't cowards in war, their explanation may have been sincere. The festival was celebrated only at Sparta in honor of Apollo from the 7th to the 15th of the month of Carnea. Herodotus reports that Phidippides arrived on the 9th, Plato, though, mentions difficulties caused by a war with the Mycenaeans that prevented Sparta from sending immediate assistance. Perhaps another helot revolt had occurred that required Spartan forces to remain in Mycenae, or at least close to home. Anyways, Phidippides ran back to Athens and announced, gloomingly, that Sparta wasn't coming. And so, without definitive Spartan aid, the Athenians immediately began to deliberate on their next course of action. The Polemarchus, or commander-in-chief, of the Athenian army was Callimachus, who was aided in his decision-making by the ten tribal generals, or strategoi, the most influential proving to be Miltiades. According to Herodotus, the Athenian strategoi knew they were badly outnumbered, and thus were split on what to do next. Some favored bringing everybody up onto the Acropolis and defending the city that way until the Spartan reinforcements arrived after the full moon. While others thought a delay in action like that was risky, and urged a preemptive strike to meet the Persians in a pitched battle, 
The Athenians, though, at this time really did not have the walls to survive a siege, especially against the Persian siege tactics that took down their Ionian kinsfolk. Miltiades emerged as a leading figure here, since he was the resident Persian expert and possessed great merit and skill. He argued that they should engage the Persians in battle in order to save the majority of Athenians who were exposed in the countryside. Hiding on the Acropolis and not defending their polis against an enemy went against the arete of a hoplite soldier. Furthermore, he must have realized that the Athenians were more divided politically than the Eretrians, and eventually somebody would open the gates to the Persians. And so, having convinced the other strategoi, about 9,000 Athenians immediately marched out to block the two exits from the plain of Marathon. They were joined by a thousand Plataeans, who were the only Greeks willing to send immediate help, presumably because the Athenians came to their aid against the Thebans a few decades earlier. This would earn them unending Athenian gratitude. Herodotus does not provide us these numbers. They come from Plutarch. Modern scholars generally accept these numbers as reasonable, though so those are what we will go with. The plain of Marathon was situated next to a large crescent-shaped bay facing eastwards, suitably named the Bay of Marathon, where Datus had moored his ships. This extended all the way around into a long peninsula that juts out into the sea, referred to as the Dog's Tail. The Persians made camp on the northeast side of the plain, next to a large marshland. Although the Persians dictated the battlefield, the Athenians chose the terrain. And so to the left, the Athenians set up their camp in a valley between two mountains that blocked the main road to Athens, which then extends off in two directions. In the valley, the flanks of the phalanx were well protected by steep, rocky hills. The Athenian left was anchored in the sacred temple of Heracles, and their right by a grove of trees. And between those two camps lied the plain of Marathon, which was six miles long and two miles wide. Opposing the 10,000 or so Greek troops was a much larger force of what modern scholars predict was about 25,000 Persian soldiers, as we discussed earlier, which would have been a roughly two and a half to one Persian advantage. However, although the Persians had the much larger and more versatile force, with cavalry, archers, and skirmish troops, the Greek force, consisting essentially of hoplites, was more heavily armored. Furthermore, the Greeks had the far superior position and tried to contain the beachhead and keep the Persians in the marshy area for as long as possible. An army of hoplites wouldn't last long on an open field against horses that could swoop in from the rear and archers to mow them down. Thus, by positioning their troops where they did in the valley, they were able to eliminate the cavalry from the fight, which would have been suited perfectly for the plain of Marathon. In fact, because of this is probably why Herodotus doesn't even make mention of the Persian cavalry in his account of the battle. About five days had gone by with no action whatsoever. Herodotus suggests that command rotated between the strategoi each day, but this is doubtful because it goes against what was typical for the Athenians. So we must assume that Herodotus got it wrong and that Callimachus, as Polemarch, was the supreme leader although he definitely was influenced by Miltiades. Herodotus probably made this mistake while seeking for an explanation in the delay of action. The reason for the delay, though, was probably because neither side was willing to risk battle initially. The Persians may not have been anxious to force an early battle, 
for their experience at Eretria would have encouraged them to believe that there would be divisions among those at Athens and possibly those in the field. The Athenians also had good reason to wait for the Persians to make the first move, as they patiently waited for the Spartans to arrive. This then raises the question as to why the battle occurred when it did. The most popular belief is that the Persian cavalry left Marathon for an unspecified reason and that the Greeks moved to take advantage of this by attacking first. There are many variations of this theory, but the most prevalent is that the Persians, on the sixth day, perhaps began to realize that they would run out of supply soon and needed to attack. So they loaded up their cavalry and sent them to sail around Attica to Phaleron Bay and march into Athens. The other troops were supposed to engage the Greeks if they tried to retreat, and so keep them from returning to defend Athens. Miltiades had recruited spies amongst the Persian ranks, who informed him what was happening. So when he learned that some of the Persian troops and cavalry were missing, and rightfully suspected that part of the Persian forces were heading for Phaleron, Miltiades realized that time was now of the essence, and the moment to strike had come. Even though the moon was now full, and the Spartans could be expected shortly, delaying any longer could be fatal. Thus, a council of war was called to decide whether to stay put or to advance. This is where Herodotus' account picks back up. Miltiades was vehemently in favor of attacking now, and the probable reason behind this is that they needed to defeat the Persians fast and get back to Athens, for he believed that the city might be betrayed by its own people. For many, the chances of Athens' survival as an independent city in the face of such Persian aggression must have seemed very slender, and it would not be surprising if there were those who preferred to Medize before rather than after defeat. As we shall see later in the episode, there are signs that this existed, and so it was probably this fear that led some to risk such a decisive battle. The Polemarchus, Callimachus, though, had the deciding vote. Herodotus here records a stirring rendition of Miltiades' speech. Callimachus, it is up to you, right now, to enslave Athens or to make her free, and to leave, for all future generations of humanity, a memorial to yourself, such as not even Harmodius and Aristogiton have left. Right now, Athens is in the most perilous moment of her history. Hippias has already shown her what she will suffer if she bows down to the Medes, but if this city survives, she can become the foremost city in all of Greece. Now, I'll tell you just how this is possible, and how it is up to you, and only you, to determine the course of events. We ten generals are split right in two, with half saying fight, and the other half not. If we don't fight now, I am afraid that a storm of civil strife will so shake the timber of the Athenian people that they will go over to the Medes. But if we fight now, before the cracks can show in some of the Athenians, and provided that the gods take no sides, why then, we can survive this battle. All this depends on you. It hangs on your decision. Now. If you vote with me, your fatherland will be free, and your city will be first in all of Hellas. But if you choose the side of those who urge us not to fight, then the opposite, of all of the good I've spoken of, will fall upon you. Needless to say, Callimachus was convinced by Miltiades. And so the decision was made to march out and surprise the Persians on the next morning, which means that they would give up their superior position in the valley. In doing so, though, 
Miltiades was worried about being outflanked, since the Persians had superior numbers. So he was forced to weaken his depth to cover the Persian length. Since he had to do this, pushing all of his chips into the center of the table, he decided to go for broke. So he loaded up the wings with as many men as he possibly could, hoping to turn the Persians inwards before they busted through the very thin Greek center. This would become what is known as the classic pincer strategy. Callimachus took his place as Polemarch on the right wing, with Miltiades on the left, with the Plataeans, and Themistocles and Aristides commanding their tribal contingents in the center. The Greeks knew that the Persians relied heavily on their archers to demoralize and break up their enemies' lines, after which their cavalry was expected to get to work. These tactics were well known to the Athenians, and they had worked out the best way to confront them. We had mentioned in episode 21 that the athletic event, Hoplito Dromos, a race in full hoplite armor, developed at the end of the 6th century BC, possibly as the result of military training that intended to neutralize Persian arrows. Well, at dawn the next morning, either August or September 12th, 490 BC, the Greek army charged from the valley in a full sprint, covering the mile or so that divided their two camps at breakneck speed, despite the weight of their hoplon and their armor. This was highly unorthodox for hoplite phalanxes to break ranks and charge like this, so the Persians were completely taken by surprise and scrambled to get into formation as quickly as possible. Within about 200 yards or so, the Greeks would have been given a signal to come back and tighten up the phalanx again. By the time contact would have occurred, they would have been back in battle formation, and thus Persian armors couldn't do much damage to the heavily armored hoplites as they descended. Despite their numerical superiority, the Persians were unable to withstand the disciplined and determined hoplites fighting in defense of their freedom. The Greeks were also aided by the fact that they had better armor and longer spears. However, the infamous immortals and Sakai were able to push the weaker Greek center back towards the valley. But right before disaster occurred, the Greek generals Themistocles and Aristides had managed to encourage the hoplites to counterattack and stop the Persian advance. And just as Miltiades had hoped, the Greeks managed to crush the Persian wings, where they had their weaker fighters, which were usually supported by cavalry, but not today. Those on the wings broke rank and fled back to the ships, allowing the Greeks to envelope and trap the Persian center, hemmed in on three sides, and probably experiencing fear from the fog of war. The Persians panicked and fled back to the ships. The Greeks gave chase, and as the Persians fled, many were bogged down in the swampy marshes and were cut down in the general panic that ensued. The fighting was the fiercest by the ships. Plutarch reports that one of the Shartigoi, a man named Kynagaros, who was the brother of the poet Aeschylus, fought especially valiantly. In his effort to seize the stern of a Persian ship, he held on to it defiantly until his right hand was chopped off by an axe. Then he grasped the ship with his left hand until the Persians cut that one off as well. And so, having lost both of his hands, he decided to hang on by his teeth, and even in his mutilated state, he fought desperately, like a rabbit wild beast until he was finally slain. Such was the ferocity that the Athenians had fought with in defense of their homeland. Plutarch remarks 
that as Callimachus was chasing down fleeing Persians back to their ships, he was pierced with so many spears that he fell to his knees and continued to be in an upright position, a befitting and glorious end to a victorious Greek general. The Persians, though, had enough time to get most of the men who had fled from their wings on board the ships while the main fighting was still taking place at the south end of the plain. And so by the time the rest of the Greeks caught up, only seven ships were able to be captured before the Persian troops managed to sail away. Another wonderful anecdote is recorded by Plutarch. Callias was one of the richest men in Athens, as he was born into an extremely wealthy Athenian family that provided slaves the state-owned silver mines of Larion, which will be extremely useful in the upcoming episodes. Well, at Marathon, he fought in his rich priestly attire, and right after the battle, an enemy soldier confused Callias for a king and showed him where a large quantity of gold had been hidden in a ditch. Callias was said to have killed the man and secretly took the treasure, though afterwards rumors spread of the incident and later comic poets gave his family the name Lacopluti, or Enriched by the Ditch. This is the first time Callias appears on our historical narrative, and he and his family will pop up quite a bit in various episodes in the future. Meanwhile, Hippias and the Persians had sailed south around Attica at Cape Sunion for Athens, hoping to find the city either unprotected or willing to accept him. Following their victory at Marathon, the war prizes and prisoners were placed in the care of Aristides the Just, more on him shortly, and the rest of the Athenian army doubled time back across Attica via the main road to Phaleron. It's hard to imagine how tired these hoplites were at this point, but if they wished to save Athens, they had to keep going. It's difficult to know how long it would have taken the Persian fleet to sail from Marathon to Athens, a distance of about 62 nautical miles. While a trireme of that time can make that trip in about 10 hours, a lot would have depended on the currents, weather condition, weight that the ship was carrying, and so forth. Well, as the Persian fleet approached Phaleron that evening, they saw the Athenian army lined up on the walls of the harbor and ready to fight again. Datis, who was hoping to reach Phaleron first, knew a forced landing against a land army would have been a suicide mission, and so they were forced to retreat back across the Aegean to Persia. Although it is not stated, we never hear of Datis again, and many believe that when he returned to Persia, he was executed by Darius for his failure. Artaphernes would have been spared due to his familial relationship to the great king. Herodotus tells a story about shield signals being flashed from Mount Penteli to the Persian ships, letting them know it was safe to advance on the city. Responsibility for such a signal has never been established, but apparently a large number of Athenians must have believed it was the Alcmeonidae, because rumors had been swirling that provoked Herodotus to vehemently and at great length deny such accusations. It's at this point in his narrative that he digresses into the backstory of their lineage and achievements. Furthermore, Herodotus favored the Alcmeonidae and seems to have used Alcmeonidae sources in his writing, so he naturally would have dismissed it as common gossip, even if it were true. However, certainly no message of any complexity could have been conveyed with the technological limits of the time, and whether from high ground or by the shore, a signal would hardly have been visible from a half a mile or more out at sea. So it seems unlikely that any signal was even given. Perhaps this was a slanderous tale concocted to discredit the Alcmeonidae. 
Although we cannot be totally sure if the Alcmeonidae had a pro-Persian stance, it would jive with Cleisthenes being wiped off the historical record at the end of the 6th century BC, as we have previously mentioned. Because over the next few years, as we will see, accusations of Persian sympathies would dog aspiring Athenian politicians and offer an easy route to damaging a controversial figure's political reputation. On the next day, an army of 2,000 Spartans had arrived in Attica, having covered the 140 miles in only three days, in order to help fight against the Persians. But when they arrived, they realized that they were too late to participate in the fighting, and were shocked to hear what had happened. Still, they wanted to go to the battlefield to see the carnage that had taken place. Herodotus mentions that after surveying the Persian corpses, they congratulated the Athenians on their victory. But I am almost positive that this must have really bothered the Spartans that they didn't get the opportunity for glory. He also maintained that 6,400 Persians were killed, but only 192 Athenians and 11 Plataeans died in the battle. The Persian casualty number was probably a wild guess, but the Greek casualty number seems to be correct for the names of those who died were inscribed on the battlefield, and so Herodotus would have been able to count them up. Some Athenian slaves also died, but their numbers are unknown. Although the normal Athenian practice was to bring their battle dead home and hold a funeral in Athens, on this occasion, those who died were buried where they had fallen, and a monument was subsequently erected on the site. There actually has been a large communal grave found at Marathon today that you can go and visit. It's a large mound at the south end of the plain, which the Athenians raised over their buried dead. The epitaph was written by Simonides. Fighting for all of the Greeks, the Athenians battled at Marathon and destroyed the power of the gold-armored Medes. Recently, another burial place has been identified, that of the eleven Plataeans. After their extraordinary victory, the Athenian commander Miltiades dedicated his helmet at the Temple of Zeus in Olympia. It's still there today and can be seen in the archaeological museum at Olympia, although it's a little bit battered. We can tell it is his, though, because if you look very closely, you can see his name inscribed on it. For the Persians, the two expeditions to Greece had been largely successful. New territories had been added to their empire, and Eretria had been punished. It was only a minor setback that the invasion had met defeat at Marathon. That defeat barely dented the enormous resources of the Persian Empire. Yet, for the Greeks, it was an enormously significant victory. It was the first time that the Greeks had beaten the Persians, and up until that point, the name of the Persians was fearful for the Greeks. But Marathon showed that the Persians were not invincible, and that resistance, rather than subjugation, was possible. Militarily, a major lesson for the Greeks was the potential of the hoplite phalanx. This style had developed, as we have seen, during internecine warfare amongst the Greeks. Since each city-state fought in the same way, the advantages and disadvantages of the hoplite phalanx had not been obvious. Marathon was the first time a phalanx faced more lightly armored troops and revealed how devastating the hoplites could be in battle. The phalanx formation was still vulnerable to cavalry, which would be the cause of much caution by the Greek commanders in upcoming battles. But when used in the right circumstances, it was now shown to be a potentially devastating weapon. The Persians seemed to have more or less disregarded the military lessons of Marathon. The composition of the infantry for the second invasion 
seems to have been the same as during the first. Despite the availability of hoplites and other heavy infantry in Persian-ruled lands, having won battles against hoplites previously, the Persians may simply have regarded Marathon as an aberration. The victory at Marathon was a defining moment for the young Athenian democracy, showing what might be achieved through unity and self-belief. Indeed, the battle effectively marks the start of a golden age for Athens. This was also applicable to Greece as a whole. Their victory endowed the Greeks with the faith in their destiny that was to endure for three centuries, during which Western culture would be born. As such, Marathon became a source of national pride for the Athenians. At Delphi, a long base was built in front of their treasury to show off the trophies of the battle. Furthermore, legend grew up quickly around the battle. And so, when a generation had passed and Herodotus wrote all about it, some facts were partly forgotten and others partly transfigured. About three decades after the battle, this event was immortalized in a painting in the Stoa Poikili, or painted portico, at the north end of the Athenian Agora. Pausanias describes the painting in great detail in his work. Callimachus, Miltiades, Datis, and Artaphernes could all be identified, as well as Aeschylus' brother, Kynagaris, hanging onto the Persian ship, and the so-called Dog of Marathon. A later legend relates that one hoplite brought his dog to the Athenian encampment. This dog followed its master everywhere, even into battle, and so when the fighting started, it attacked the Persians at his master's side. Gods and heroes were present at the battle as well, such as Heracles, Athena, and the other Olympic gods, and Theseus, who many believed had offered phantom aid on the battlefield, as Homeric gods had done at Troy. These rumors were later written down by Plutarch. Furthermore, these Marathonian scenes were shown alongside mythical battles, such as the Amazonomachy and the sacking of Troy, showing its significance in Athenian lore. The incident of the heroic death of Kynogaros became an emblem of cultural memory in ancient Greece and was described in literature in order to inspire patriotic feelings in future generations. In addition, the Athenians erected a statue next to the old Parthenon on the Athenian Acropolis in honor of Callimachus, called the Nike of Callimachus. The statue depicts Nike, or the goddess of victory, in the form of a woman with wings on top of an inscribed column. It would be severely damaged, thanks to the Persians, more on that in a future episode, but has been restored and is now on display at the Acropolis Museum. Similarly, after the victory, the festival of Agroteros Thysia, or Sacrifice to the Agrotera, was held at Agri, near Athens, in honor of Artemis Agrotera, or Artemis the Huntress. This was in fulfillment of a vow made by the city before the battle to offer in sacrifice a number of goats equal to that of the Persians slain in the conflict. The number was so great, though, that it was decided to offer 500 goats yearly until the number was fulfilled. Xenophon notes that at his time, 90 years after the battle, goats were still being offered yearly to Artemis at this festival. All sorts of legends grew around Pheidippides after Marathon. Since the worship of Pan was revived after the battle in a cave consecrated to him under the northwest slope of the Acropolis, called the Pandion, legends grew that Pan had accosted Pheidippides in Arcadia on his way to Sparta, asking him why the Athenians had neglected his worship. 
Pheidippides promised that they would build a new shrine to him as soon as they defeated the Persians in their upcoming battle, and so the god assisted them at Marathon. He appeared at the crucial moment and instilled the Persians with his own brand of terror, the mindless, frenzied fear that bore his name, panic, as the Greeks charged down the hill. According to the later Greek author Lucian, another legend came forth about Pheidippides. After the Athenians had won at Marathon, an ecstatic Pheidippides ran the 26.2 miles back to Athens in full armor to share the good news. He loudly proclaimed, Karate Nikomen, Hail, we have won, after which he dropped dead. Because of this run, we get the length, 26.2 miles, and the name of the modern marathon. Herodotus does not mention this occurring, and Plutarch and Lucian, who are much later authors, are the only ones who mention it, so it was probably just a later invention. Furthermore, in addition to marathon races being ran throughout the world today, in modern Greece, they also celebrate the Spartathlon, in which contestants run the 153-mile race from Athens through the mountains of Arcadia to Sparta in less than two days in honor of Pheidippides. That sounds completely insane, and those who have accomplished this feat have my everlasting respect. From that point onward, the 10,000 or so hoplite soldiers who fought at Marathon became known as the Marathonomachoi, or those men who fought at Marathon. Plutarch remarks that after the battle, the fathers of both Callimachus and Kynageros had an argument about whose son had performed the most valiantly in battle. The famous Greek playwright and brother of Kynageros, Aeschylus, who also fought in this battle, decided that fighting in this battle was the only accomplishment in his life worth mentioning on his epitaph. He makes no mention of his stupendous achievements as a tragic dramatist, but only speaks of his service in his battle for the freedom of Athens. It reads, The glorious grove of Marathon can tell of his valor, as can the long-haired Persian, who well remembers it. Throughout the next decades, the Marathon of Makoi enjoyed singular prestige in Athens, and as time went by, they came to represent the simple virtues of the older generation in an increasingly luxurious and complex society. Miltiades' reputation and power was at its highest in Athens due to his services rendered against the Persians at Marathon. So the following year, in 489 BC, when he put forth a proposal to put himself in charge of 70 ships with soldiers and money without naming the objective of his expedition, but with a guarantee of acquiring great wealth for Athens, it easily passed in the Ecclesia. At least that is what Herodotus says. For all we know, he might have told them that he wanted to force the Aegean islands to renounce their allegiance to the great king. Regardless, he aimed to conquer the island of Paros on the pretext that they had supplied ships to the Persians. And so he sailed off with 70 ships, and arriving at Paros, he placed the island under siege. He then sent a herald to demand 100 talents from the Parians, and if they didn't give it to him, he would have his army completely destroy the city. Well, that equaled to 600,000 drachmas and was a very large sum, considering that a skilled workman earned a drachma a day. So the Parians had no intention of giving any money to Miltiades, and so settled in for the siege. And like most Greek armies at that time, Miltiades was terrible at besieging cities. And so after 26 days, he gave up and sailed back to Athens. He had failed. He was bringing no money back to the Athenians, nor had he added Paros to their territory. 
To make matters worse, he was badly wounded in his thigh. Herodotus claims that it was the result of him violating the sanctuary of Demeter. Anyways, his expeditionary failure provided an opportunity for Miltiades' political enemies, jealous of his military prowess in the Marathonian campaign, to bring him down. And so the Athenians quickly turned on their great hero, most likely under the suspicion that his ambitions were close to tyrannical. He was brought to court and tried by Xanthippus, formally for the charge of deceiving the people. But his wound was becoming infected, and he was unable to defend himself. So as he attended his trial, seated on a chair, his friends and relatives spoke on his behalf. Even though they highlighted what he had done for the Athenian people at Marathon, he was still found guilty. His enemies pushed for the death penalty, but the Athenian people couldn't do that to the man who saved them at Marathon. So they settled on a fine of 50 talents of silver, an absurd amount to be assessed against a private individual. It is impossible to know just how much the voters in the Ecclesia had known about the objective of Miltiades' expedition, or if they had been bought off by his political enemies. But it is clear that they, or someone, wanted to prevent him from holding public office ever again. Unable to pay the debt, he was forced to ask his son, Chimon, for help. As it just so happened, one of the richest men in Athens, Callias, had fallen in love with Miltiades' daughter, Elpeniki. She was intelligent, charming, and well-respected for her political mind and social graces, a rare feat in the male-dominated Greek society. As a condition of their marriage, Callias agreed to pay his fine. However, it was all in vain, as gangrene developed soon after, and Miltiades would die before the year was out. After the death of Miltiades, the outsider, Themistocles, and the two noblemen, Aristides and Xanthippus, rose to the forefront in Athenian politics in the 480s BC. Aristides, the son of Lysimachus, was born in 530 BC into a family of moderate fortune. Plutarch reports that as youths, both he and Themistocles fell in love with the same girl, and because of this, they would remain bitter rivals even into adult political life. While this may be true, their dissimilarities in their upbringings and personalities is likely to have been what fueled their variance. As a young adult, Aristides became a follower of Cleisthenes and sided with the aristocratic faction in Athenian politics. He was one of the strategoi at Marathon, and due to the distinction which he achieved in the battle, he was elected as eponymous archon for 489-488 BC. Herodotus cited him as the best and most honorable man in Athens, for which he was given the nickname, The Just, because under no circumstances would he tolerate falsehood, deception, or hypocrisy. According to Plutarch, although he was the cousin of Callias, the richest man in Athens and son-in-law of Miltiades, he chose to live moderately and not divulge into licentious hedonism. He was a selfless politician and a genuine patriot for the democratic Athenian state and received similarly reverent treatment in Plato's Socratic Dialogues. Although it is not stated, born around 525 BC as a member of the aristocracy, Xanthippus likely fought as a citizen soldier at Marathon, but we know for sure that he was the chief prosecutor of Miltiades. It would have been very useful if Herodotus had stated his motive for bringing this case. Once again, perhaps Herodotus didn't know, but then again, perhaps he did and decided to hide it. 
Anyways, Xanthippus may have been inspired by his desire for justice on behalf of the people, but his demand for the death penalty suggests bitter opposition to Miltiades, and very possibly Miltiades' policy of outright resistance to Persia. Xanthippus's marriage to the Alcmeonidae Agoristi provides more evidence of a possible political alliance with the family, some of whose members may have favored cooperation with the Persians. If this is true, then his prosecution of Miltiades was designed to weaken the opposition by removing its political leader once and for all. This seems plausible, since the dominant political issue after Marathon must have been Athens' future relations with Persia. The Athenians must have known that such a humiliating defeat at their hands, coming after their burning of Sardis, was bound to provoke Persian retaliation on a far greater scale. These politicians, such as Miltiades, who had always advocated resistance to Persia, would have supported a policy of preparing for the conflict by rearmament and by forming alliances with other Greek states. The others would have done their utmost to make peace at all costs with Persia and to rid Athens of dangerous warmongers. It was in this contest, when there was such a major and irreconcilable division within the state, with potentially destructive consequences for Athens, that the people unleashed for the first time the political weapon that Cleisthenes had forged to resolve such dangerous situations, that of ostracismos, or ostracism. The first three on the Athenian record, according to Aristotle, were aimed at those considered to be, as he put it, friends of the tyrants, those being Hipparchus, a relative of Hippias, in 488-487 BC, the Alcmeonidae leader Megacles, in 487-486 BC, and Callias, who, although he was the son-in-law of Miltiades, was a political supporter of the Alcmeonidae, in 486-485 BC. It seems unlikely, though, that there was any serious or substantial support for Hippias at this time, as Cleisthenes' democratic reforms had been in operation for the past two decades, and the principle of isonomia had been firmly established. If tyranny was restored, these political benefits would be removed from the people. In addition, Hipparchus had been elected by the people to the civilian political post, the eponymous archonship, and was unlikely to have achieved this position of power by standing on a pro-tyrant platform. And so, it would seem that the issues of tyranny and of a cooperative policy towards Persia became connected in the minds of the people. The fourth to be removed was Anthippus in 485-484 BC. He wasn't a friend of the tyrant, as Aristotle put it, but was ostracized because he appeared to have become too powerful and influential. There are good grounds for believing that Aristotle was wrong in alleging this motive to the people. Xanthippus was the brother-in-law of Megacles, which is usually the sign of a political alliance, and he conducted the successful prosecution of the anti-Persian Miltiades four years earlier, as we previously discussed. Corroborating this, archaeologically speaking, Around 6,000 ostraca have been found either in the Agora, the Acropolis, or the Karamikos, with the names of Hipparchus, Megacles, and Callias. In regards to Callias, four of these ostraca say either Callias the Mede or Callias the Persian, and one ostracon has a drawing of him in Persian clothes. In addition, numerous ostraca have been found with the names of two other Alcmeonidae, Calixenos and Hippocrates. These two were not recorded as being ostracized, though, so they were probably cast unsuccessfully. Although they are unmentioned in the literary sources, 
they clearly were men of political importance in Athens. In fact, one Ostrakon calls him Calixenos the traitor. Thus, this all strongly suggests that the Alcmeonidae, or their political allies in the mid-480s BC, were the prime targets of ostracism, either because of their legitimate pro-Persian policies or because their political opponents made it seem like they wished to install Hippias as tyrant again. It might have also been due to suspicions of treason during Marathon. All of these collectively together might have been what caused Herodotus to feel as if he needed to address the rumors that the Alcmeonidae had tried to aid the Persians in some capacity. Many scholars have suspected that Themistocles was the mastermind behind some or all of these ostracisms. In fact, an archaeological discovery of 191 inscribed ostraca in the Athenian Agora, with Themistocles' name on them, shows that he was sufficiently prominent and influential enough for his political enemies to attempt his downfall. However, careful analysis of the handwriting shows that they were written only by 14 hands. So the best guess is that what we have here are not ostraca from votes that were actually cast. They probably were default ostraca, which opponents of Themistocles, probably the Alcmeonidae, handed out as a sort of organized political propaganda. In other words, these politicians were using their client relations with poorer citizens to get their political enemies out of the way for a while. Anyways, Themistocles would become the dominant politician in Athens at the end of the decade, so it would make sense that he didn't have a dramatic and sudden rise to influence, but was politically active throughout the 480s BC, as the political opponent of the Alcmeonidae and their allies, and a supporter of the policy of resistance to Persia. In the same vein, the nature of political leadership in Athens also changed in the 480s BC. Events surrounding the Battle of Marathon had impressed on the Athenians the importance of sound military leadership. Shortly afterwards, they signaled this awareness by a change in the method of selecting archons, who as primarily judicial officials had come to seem less important in comparison to the strategoi, who had life and death military responsibilities. And so in 487-486 BC, they began choosing archons by lot from a large poll perhaps a hundred men in total, contributed by the various deems, ten from each tribe, the method already used for selecting members of the boule of 500. This shift ensured that men of ambition would not stand for the archonship, a non-renewable office, but for the strategia, or generalship. It also served gradually to undermine the status of the venerable council of the Areopagus. Because it was composed of former archons, as time went by, it became more and more filled by men who had been chosen by lot. It seems likely that the originator of this move was Themistocles. Not only was Themistocles hostile to the aristocratic ethos that granted special power and prestige to the Areopagites, but as a man who had already served his archonship and was eligible to repeat only his generalship, he had a more immediate interest in enhancing the role of the strategoi at the archon's expense. And so, as a consequence, the generalship became the most prestigious office in the government, and the ten strategoi outranked all other Athenians in authority. The strategoi were eligible for re-election for as many years as they retained the confidence of the electorate. This continuity of office was essential for the approaching conflict with Persia, as it ensured that men of military ability were in a position to give coherent and consistent leadership. Themistocles was the main beneficiary in the 480s BC of this reform so it is also believed that he may have played role in its implementation. Whether he did or not for either, 
Ostracism certainly provided the much-needed unity in the state by ridding Athens of Persian sympathizers, and the generalship provided the continuity of command in the vital build-up to the war with Persia. The 480s BC also saw increased hostilities once again between Athens and Agina. In 488 BC, the Spartan king Leotokides went to Athens with Agenetan envoys, asking the Athenians to return the ten Agenetan hostages that they had previously taken a few years earlier, because Agina had denounced its alliance with Persia in the wake of Marathon. The Athenians refused, though. They spun out excuses, claiming that since two kings had deposited them, it would not be right if the Athenians returned the hostages to only one king. Angered, Leotokides returned to Sparta. The Agenetans, though, wouldn't take no for an answer. At the time, the Athenians were celebrating a festival to Poseidon at Cape Sunion, which was held every four years. So the Agenetans set up an ambush and seized the ship carrying the sacred officials, with many of the leading men of Athens on board. They then bound them in chains and took them back to Agina. This then sparked another war between Athens and their old nemesis. But the Athenians at this point only had 50 battle-ready ships, and so had to rent 20 additional triremes from the Corinthians at a sum of five drachmas apiece. A thousand Argives were sent to help the Agenetans. In the ensuing sea battle, the following year in 487 BC, the Athenians defeated the Agenetans, killing most of the Argives as well. This allowed the Athenians to land on the island to besiege the town, but the Agenetans were able to overcome them on land. This defeat caused disorder in the Athenian fleet, which was then attacked and routed by the Agenetans. They even commandeered four Athenian ships with all of their crews. But the double victory was not decisive, and warfare was extended between the two cities by sporadic plundering raids on their respective coasts. The necessity of protecting Attica from Agenetan raids, combined perhaps with the ambition of ultimately reducing Agina to subjugation or insignificance, sensibly accelerated the conversion of Athens into a naval power. As the time passed, the Greeks realized another war with Persia was imminent. The silver mines at Larion and the Sunion promontory of southeast Attica were worked by slaves and produced a steady source of income for Athens. But in 483-482 BC, the Athenians were very fortunate to discover an unusually rich vein of silver with profits of around 100 talents a year to the state. The Athenians held a meeting to decide what to do with it. Many in the Ecclesia wanted to divide the new wealth amongst the Athenians equally, which would have amounted to around 10 drachma per person. But Themistocles, looking ahead to another looming war with Persia, wanted to use the money to build new ships for the Athenian navy. The situation was at a standstill, until when it was time to hold the ostracisms for the upcoming year, and Themistocles managed to get his chief rival ostracized, that being Aristides. A victorious Themistocles then convinced the people to use the money on new ships, and they were built with incredible speed. It was probably the ongoing hostility of Agina that persuaded the people to accept his policy. Within two years, Athens had a fleet of 200 triremes, the largest navy of all the Greeks. These new ships needed lots of rowers, so those from the lower class, who couldn't afford to purchase hoplite armor, were taught the inexpensive art of being a rower instead. Aristides was the last man in the 480s BC to be ostracized, and although it is not explicitly stated in the sources, the issue that probably led to his ostracism was Themistocles' naval bill. 
Ostensibly, his proposal to build a new fleet was put forward to meet the threat from Agina, but in reality, he had Persia in view. According to Plutarch, there had always been great personal and political rivalry between these two politicians, but their disagreement over this issue was perceived by the Athenians to be so divisive and so potentially damaging to the state that only an ostracism could finally resolve the matter. Once again, the sources fail to clarify the reason for Aristides' specific opposition to Themistocles' naval bill. At that point, the Athenians were a considerable naval power amongst the Greeks, but the fleet was regarded as subsidiary to the army. Themistocles wanted to make Athens the premier sea power in ancient Greece, so it's possible that Aristides was worried that such an emphasis on sea power would weaken and undermine the quality of the Athenian hoplite army. Far more likely was his fear that if Athens' future greatness depended upon sea power, the lower-class Thetes, who would be the oarsmen of the ships, were bound to demand more political power than was granted to them under Cleisthenes' constitution, which favored the aristocracy and the middle classes. Themistocles, on the other hand, firmly believed that Athens' future lay on the sea and willingly accepted the political consequences of this policy. Plutarch, in his Life of Aristides, relays an interesting anecdote on Aristides' ostracism. On the day that ostracism was being voted for, in 482 BC, some random guy approached Aristides and asked him to write Aristides' name on the pot shard, since he was illiterate. So he asked the man what his problem was with Aristides. The man said he had no ill will towards him, but he was just so tired of hearing everyone call him the just. Well, staying true to his nickname, Aristides then wrote his own name on the pot shard and turned it into the ballot. He ultimately received enough votes to be ostracized. Plutarch uses this possibly true story, we aren't sure to be honest, to illustrate how foolish he thought this aspect of democracy was. Aristides' ostracism removed the last obstacle to harmony in the state, and the Athenians decided that ostracism should be suspended in order to provide a unified front to the upcoming Persian invasion. Furthermore, in 481-480 BC, they declared an amnesty for all those who had been ostracized, allowing them to return to Athens, admit the error of their former policies, and join in on the defense of their homeland. All returned except Hipparchus, who was condemned to death in absentia as a traitor. With all of their best generals back in the city, the Athenians were now ready to face the sternest test in their history to date, and they would need them. Because during the 480s BC, the Persians weren't idle either. They licked their wounds, saw a new king come to the throne, who squashed rebellions, and raised an even larger force than before. By the end of the decade, they were ready to begin the final phase in the Greco-Persian War. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 37, Molon Labe. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes in your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. 
But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless. But it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all. With the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, A Well-Tuned Liar, from his album, A Well-Tuned Liar, The Just Intonation of Antiquity. If you like what you heard, and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.